You're listening to The Whole Church Podcast. Our efforts to educate and unite the church are made possible thanks to our sponsors on Patreon. Please consider joining them for $3 a month. Also, consider supporting our fundraiser by going to the link in the show notes and buying one of our fundraiser t-shirts. Ephesians 4, 29-32 in the Christian Standard Bible reads, No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Uh, Michael Jacob, how do you believe the ideas expressed in this passage about how we speak to each other is relevant today concerning forgiveness and church unity? So I, first off, thank you so much for having me and for inviting me. And I think this is an awesome question because I think right now we are in a crisis of not understanding what forgiveness is. And I think this is really critical because I think when we don't understand what forgiveness means, you can't have unity. How could you find unity if being human, like I am, you know, I'll, I'll quote Paul as well. I'm the first most from sinners. <laughs> I'm going to do something wrong. If we don't as a community and as a culture understand what forgiveness means, there can't be unity. But let me go a little deeper than that. What is forgiveness? A lot of people think saying, oh, I forgive you. It's like nothing ever happened. But no, true forgiveness first requires understanding the true depth of the offense. It's not forgiveness if I say there wasn't a problem. Right now, let's pretend Joshua steps on my toe. He looks like he's kind of the guy that might do that. Well, I'd be like, oh, that hurt. It's not forgiveness if I say, no, it's not a big deal. But it is forgiveness when I say, Joshua, that really hurt. My toe is now bleeding all over the ground. But extending God's mercy... I'm going to forgive you for this anyways, acknowledging what that wound was. And when I read Paul writing about this, I think a lot of us modern Christians in the church, we try to like downplay the human injuries we all do to each other, the disagreements, the things that happen, rather than saying, this is a big deal. This is important. There is harm done. But through the grace and mercy of God, I choose to offer forgiveness anyways. And for those wondering, I am pretty clumsy and I walk a lot more aggressively than myself and most people notice. Yeah. Very heavy feet. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Whole Church Podcast. Possibly your favorite church unity podcast. Maybe not. I'm one of your co-hosts, Joshua Knoll, and I am brought on today so that I can do two really important things. Um, First and foremost, I am here to introduce to you the one the only, the greatest person to ever even like contemplate a mic. Not just the greatest person to touch one, but the greatest one to even think about mics. The one and only TJ Tiberius, Juan Blackwell, my other co-host. How you doing? Uh, uh, thanks. I'm doing great. Yeah. Now he's, he's fantastic. And uh, we are also joined today by someone whose name I am guaranteed to mis- mispronounce. That's already been a lot of fun talking before the show. The one and only Michael Jacquith. Mr. Jakewith, and that's a great opportunity Jake for forgiveness right there. I will happily forgive any who mispronounce <laughs> my name, for I understand it well. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes, and he is a Catholic life coach. He has a website, CatholicLifeCoachForMen.com. Excited to talk to him about that today. I'm excited right. to be here. Nice. Uh, we have some great new shirts for our fundraiser today, and you know, for the past quarters. But we are trying to get a new website. We're doing our convention next year. Uh, Go check them out. Pick one up. If you don't like fundraiser shirt, there are other options. They still help with the fundraiser. 
you can go to the link in the show notes and you can use the code whole all caps w h o l e and it's five dollars off this month only yeah yeah so we have uh two different links one's for the fundraiser and one is for the whole church podcast store both help fundraiser shirt does help more and and of course we're going to start this off with my absolute favorite form of unity the only thing guaranteed to prevent division is to be completely and utterly silly. So we start this off with a silly question. And and this one is uh this one's a recycled one. I think it's like the second or third one we ever did. But COVID's happened since then. Lots of things have happened since then. Our answers may be different. I don't even remember what my answer was the first time. So TJ and I are gonna answer first, let you think about it. Where is the place people should least expect to find you? I'm kind of curious TJ's answer first, actually. Yeah, oh, so the the place people should least expect to find me is probably a hospital. Why? Urgent care. I don't get sick. <laughs> uh, That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's, be- it's become very, very nice. Okay, but is it less likely for you to get sick than it is to be at a at a underground rave? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's incredible. Um, for me, it's funny because like I'm tempted to say like you know like a country hoedown or like underground rave something like that. That's like completely and utterly not me. Um, but based off of recent experience, something that I've done once that I'm now pretty certain you will never see me at ever again is, uh, is down in like the pit for a concert. You will not find me there. You are not going to find me at the front of a bunch of screamy people excited for a rock band. Yeah. Just don't expect to see me there. Yeah. Um, Michael, where should people least expect to see you? First of all, I love the silliness. I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis, and he said there's certain things in life the only response is belly laughter. So I'm going to take this even a level deeper. And there's one spot I love to Perfect. be that you'll never see me. And I'm an avid hunter, and I love the outdoors. But you'll never see me because I don't wear hunter orange at all. I am completely invisible. I have had people walk within inches of me, but I'm just so still and you know so completely camouflaged they don't even know I'm there. What you said makes perfect sense. But I have to let you know, the first thing I thought when you said perfectly still was just that image of Drax going, right? you can't see me. I move this slowly. <laughs> no, not so. You can't be eating at the time. That's the key. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Then they can hear you. Right. Yeah. So usually if you do move that slow, people won't <laughs> see you. It's true, actually. No one's looking for that. Yeah. But yeah. not in his case. <laughs> no, not for him. So one thing we found for the real show questions, uh, one thing we found that is extremely helpful for church unity is to hear one other story. Would you share with us a snapshot of the story of how you came to know Christ? Absolutely. And and my story is it starts off a little dark. So for anyone who might be, you know, nervous on some some stuff that happens, unfortunately in childhood, I'll just gl- glaze over the worst of it. But my father was pretty abusive. And my mother and my father were both, they both claimed to be Christian. And so I grew up with this image of, oh, this is what Christians do. They hit you and they yell at you and scream at you. And it progressed even worse from there, unfortunately. And then when some of that was discovered, my father went to jail for 10 years. And so I kind of left that family situation really angry and deciding I wanted nothing to do at all with the church. Like, I don't know what this deal is, but it doesn't, it's not for me because I saw where it led my father. So that, that's just not my gig. And so I went off to college and I chased, chased after what I call the church of hedonism. You know, drinking, trying to chase ladies. It turns out I'm actually not that good at chasing ladies. I really tried to put my heart into it, but you know, the good Lord was trying to save <laughs> me mostly for my wife, which I appreciate. And yeah. after about, I think I gave it a good solid 12-year effort. Like I'm pretty dedicated, right? And the entire way through, God kept tugging on me, kept tugging on me. Started off initially with a young man named Paul, who I met all the way back in ninth grade. He and I became good friends. 
And 12 years into this journey, Paul says to me one day, he says, you know, Michael, I've noticed you've stopped arguing with me about the faith. And now you're just asking clarifying questions. And I said, Paul, that doesn't mean anything. I'm way too stubborn to give into this now. And so I'm going to church one day. Okay. So imagine this is a, it's a Tuesday in spring and God is just tugging my heart. And he's saying, you got to do this. You know, what's right. The church of hedonism isn't paying out. Come back into the fold. I'm like, no, no, no. You don't understand. Michael does not give in easily. And I walk into this church and imagine like this 200 foot wide banner. I probably a little bit less, but whatever. And all it says is repent today. I'm like, all right, fine, <laughs> fine. I get it. Okay, fine. And so that was the yeah, start of my coming back into the faith where I, you know, it, it was still a long and bumpy journey from there, but that was the first step where I think my heart finally cracked after decades of just lots, bluntly, lots of pain from the upbringing and then lots of stubbornness going through life. Yeah, yeah. that's a pretty familiar story to some people, some people I imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Isn't it interesting how it's like, um, and this is something funny for those of us who grew up in church, it's like sometimes you're like, man, I want to be bad in this one area because it seems like so much fun. And then it's like, not only do you repent, you realize you should have done better, but it's also kind of like, man, I, I really just kind of wasn't good at being bad. <laughs> like, it just wasn't working out. Um, so what is, you, you mentioned that church you went to there, which I, I am curious, was that a Catholic church with the banner? It then, was actually, Tuesday? yes. It was an Ash Wednesday yeah. service. It was Wednesday instead of Tuesday. And uh, so that was oh, okay. a Catholic church. And I think what kind of drew me to that, and, and please understand, I have tremendous sympathy for all who follow the banner of Christ. But for me, it was kind of a, I really felt the call back to the origins of the early church was just a very powerful experience for me. Okay, cool, cool. And um, so we, we know that you are a Catholic believer now. What could you tell us is unique about the church you currently attend or the parish you're a part of? Well, the church I currently attend, what's unique about it is we live in a little tiny town. Imagine this, the nominally 3,000 people, <laughs> probably a little bit more. And we have three services. And this first service has probably eight to 10 families that all have more than six kids. And what makes it unique wow. is the level of family we have. We, we hang out after service for at least an hour every Sunday. And the kids play with each other. The kids see each other probably five times a week during the summertime because we live near a beach and then maybe two times a week during the winter time. And all of our kids know each other. And I love that community aspect. And if I choose one thing that I think makes this church unique, I really love, that's it. That community is so powerful. Awesome. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, I know. I've, um, I've been a church, part of churches that hadn't had that. And it's just, there's something, it's, it's almost like it doesn't feel like church. If you don't have some form of community like that, where you're really like part of one another's lives outside of just hearing someone speak once a week, you know? Um, absolutely. So help, help us clarify, you know, we mentioned you're a life coach. What is the difference between a life coach mentoring someone discipleship or pastoring someone even like what is, what makes life coach different? So I, I think there's, a, this is a really common question and I'm going to use a metaphor. Let's pretend you played soccer. We're in the run of the world cup football for those of you who are overseas, of course. And if you were a soccer mm -hmm. player, and you had something really bad happen. Well, you would go to a doctor who would fix you up. And if you had never played the game before, you'd go to the, a class to learn the things. But then enters the space where there's a coach. And the coach is the guy who you're kind of moving along on your own. He's come in. And it's a very intense, engaging. If you put your weight on your left foot before you swing kick for the ball. Oh, see how the defensive player there is making this maneuver. Anticipate that by moving yourself over to the right. I'm obviously making this up. In the coaching <laughs> world as a life coach... Here's how I break it out. When I have a horrible, horrible event that scars me traumatically, 
I'm not able to process it. I go to a therapist and a therapist uses his fully functional nervous system to help me process this event that I can't process on my own. And then the therapy ideally is complete. And then I'm again, becoming functional again. But the step from functional into excellence is where the coach comes in. And as a life coach, I step and I help guys. They're not in trauma right now but they're not living their life to their full potential. They know God called them to more. They know that they have the potential to be this rock star soccer player and they don't understand their weight and they're shifting the position in the field court and how do they handle their emotions with their wife? How do they handle themselves in their workplace and still being Christian? And I work with them to really elevate that game. And if I differentiate this from Bible mentoring and from uh, lots of times you hear uh, spiritual direction style stuff, that tends to be a lower intensity. That tends to be more focused on the religious life Coaching is incredibly practical and it's incredibly saying like we meet at least once a week, oftentimes emails beyond that. And we're just really engaging in the deep nitty gritty and the spiritual direction, Bible mentoring, whatever you want to call that. There's a lot of different terms. It tends to be a less frequent event, a little bit less intensity and tends to have the greatest focus on the interior religious life. So. What makes your work unique? What makes my work unique is that I've combined together the what some people might almost call like the woo approach of life coaching, which is very, very powerful with the time honored traditions of the Christian faith, which I believe they mesh far tighter than many people might think. And I have a scientific background, so I'm incredibly analytical. And so I'm bringing together three things that people might traditionally say. Like We all know the old joke that you know religion and science can't go anywhere together. I disagree with that 100%. And I'm going to pull in this, this you know life coaching philosophy that a lot of people think can kind of woo mystical energy. And I put all three together, and I think there's some really powerful, powerful results my clients have found. Mm-hmm. So do you ever coach people from Protestant or Orthodox backgrounds? Oh, absolutely. I said early on, you've got to hail Jesus Christ as Lord. And really, I've coached beyond that too. And I found that to be kind of a little more difficult for me because it's it's like if you ever, I don't know, if you ever saw someone who's struggling with a car engine, if you're a mechanic, you'd be like, look, dude, all you got to do is flip that one switch right there and your car is going to start. But all of a sudden they say, well, I don't believe in that switch. You're like, oh, this is awkward now because now I'm not quite sure what to say. And so I have actually even coached, I'll say secular (laughs) clients. And I found I don't enjoy that as much. But as long as you're willing to point up towards the heavens and say that that guy up there who died for me on a cross, I'm willing to surrender my control and make him be in charge. Absolutely. I've had some very successful Protestant clients. So so have you ever been in a place where you were asked to coach someone who had different theological views than you? And how did you navigate that relationship? Oh, absolutely. I think the heart of coaching is any interpersonal relationship is that of compassion and care. And so if, if right now, if I were to coach Josh, I'm going to pick on Josh again, just because he's such a lovable character, and he maybe <laughs> does have some differences for me in theological positions. My goal is not as a coach to come in and say, do it the way that I do it, any more than it would be as a soccer player. Let's say you take a world-class soccer player and he becomes a coach. He's not going to teach the players that he coaches to do it the same way he did. He's going to teach the players to do it the way that works for them. In the same way, if I'm coaching Josh, I'm going to hold space that Josh has his own life story, his own perspectives, his own history, his own values, and that my goal for Josh is to succeed brilliantly, regardless of what the subtle differences in our theologies. And there's a then the coaching, a common term we call it is holding space, which is if I'm just Joshua's friend, then I'm going to get riled up too when he tells me the horrible things that <laughs> happened to him in life. But if I'm his coach, I'm not. I'm going to hold some space where he gets to have his reactions, emotions. And my job is to hold his hand and say, well, look, this is what I see happening. And is this where you want to be going? And at the end of the day, the success is not, does Joshua do what Michael thinks is right? But does Joshua do what Joshua thinks is right? And does he stand tall having achieved 
that level of self-mastery. Okay, so a couple quick practical questions. So first, um, what does a life coach session look like? If, if TJ were to just sign up today doing a life coach session with you, how like break down what that would look like for him? Absolutely. So first thing would be is like, what do you need coaching on today? And he might say something like, uh, TJ, are you a married man? Nope. Give me one problem in your life right now that you're not happy with. Let's, let's make this a little more practical. Uh, oh, got real. Um, uh, I don't know, man. Uh, I work too much. Let's take that. Okay. So here's what I do. We'd start by defining something that TJ is not happy about his life. He just said he works too much. And I'd say, okay, cool. Let's, I, as coaching, I like to make this really practical. And I'd say, when's the last time you worked too much, TJ? Yesterday. Awesome. So yesterday, when that critical moment came, what were you thinking when you decided to stay at the job? I wish I was allowed to leave. Okay. <laughs> so there we go. This is great. Now, I'm going to pause and actually not continue as if I was coaching here because I don't actually want to you know, subject TJ to this in real time. But I'd explore, <laughs> why did he feel he wasn't allowed to leave? And my suspicion is there probably was not someone holding a handgun on him there saying, if you leave, I'm going to shoot you. That's probably not the case. And so the restraint on TJ... In this case, as for all of us, most of the time, I realize there are some extreme situations, but most of the time in normal life, the constraints on us are ones we place on in our own head. And so we'd start to explore what is important to TJ in life and how is his choosing this particular job in violation of something that matters to him? Why is it causing him to feel trapped is the word I would put to them. I'm putting words in TJ's mouth here, so please forgive me, TJ. But I would say... (laughs) He feels trapped by this current situation. And so the first thing we have to do as a coach is we establish what's the deeper problem here. Maybe there's a deeper problem. I'm just going to start speculating wildly that TG has this deeper desire. He wants to do something more with his life. And this current job is not allowing him to express that desire. And maybe that echoes back to something his parents used to tell him. I don't know. But we're going to explore that deeper desire to find out what the real desire is being stepped on. And then we're going even more practical and be like, cool, this is where you want to go. This is what's in the way. What's a plan you could do to solve that? And you guys would be surprised how often just having someone say, this this is a trick question. What can you do to make this problem better? It's so sneaky of a question because it presupposes you actually can do something. And it engages your brain in a different way than it normally is engaged. Most of us human beings, we sit around like, oh, this doesn't work. I don't like it. I'm trapped here. I do this too much. I don't like this. It's a negative space. But when as a coach, I get someone's brain engaged in the positive space, how can we go about making the situation better? It's amazing what our brains will come up with. And the key here is none of this comes out of Michael. I mean, maybe a practical thing here and there, but the, the, the vast, vast majority <laughs> will come out of TJ as his brain shifts. And it has to because it's his life and he has to lead it. Thank you for letting me pick on you there, TJ. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, I'm glad I chose TJ for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so would you say then that one of the key differences between being a life coach or a therapist is therapy a lot of time is more retroactive, whereas life coach kind of seems like it's more proactive. Yes. Like forward looking as opposed to backward looking. There certainly is a great deal of that. The The biggest issue is if if I was a therapist and TJ came in and talked to me about the, the level of trauma TJ would be about his work, probably would harken back to some really severe childhood wound. Let me just, use, I'm going to make up a, a totally fictional story here for TJ. Maybe when yeah, TJ was fun. young, his parents were severe workaholics and they were gone. They were absent in his life and he got left at home, let's say day in, day out, every day. This sort of trauma without an empathetic listener through his childhood would create a distorted view of work that was so distorted, he literally couldn't process this. If I asked TJ the question, what can you do to make a difference? And his brain shuts down and like, and recoils from the emotional horror of that place, that's an indication that there's trauma 
and it's time to involve a therapist. A coach is always focused on the solution. We will go back in time in order to understand the proper source of the problem. But again, as you said, it's always in that context, how do we move forward and have that excellence you're seeking? So then do you have a therapist that you work closely with in case like you ever do run into stuff like that? I do have a good Christian therapist. He's actually a Protestant and I, I respect this cool. guy. Um, I, I know. I, hey, look, I mean it. You got to point up to this guy and say, this guy up here is Lord. And this guy, I actually went to this guy. I'm going to be fully transparent with you guys here. I went to this therapist myself because I didn't want to recommend someone that I only least been through. His name is Jacob. And if you're interested, I'm more than happy to refer you to him. But I was going to say, uh, we haven't talked to a Christian therapist yet. Let's uh, let's get him on the show. <laughs> let's do it. I, I I don't know what his availability is, but I'll, I'll send him to you. After, I'll send you his contact information after the show. Um, and so I went to him first as I'm, you know, we are always growing. We're always learning. And I mentioned my troubling beginning with my father and a lot of that trauma I held on to even well into marriage. And I think there's a certain amount that's always ongoing because we are always wounded and God allows wounding so that God can either directly or indirectly bring about a greater healing. So, sorry, sorry. This is my last one. I'll get back on track after this. You're perfect. I promise. Mm. Have you ever been in a, like a situation that you can point to where someone's beliefs were preventing the kind of coaching you wanted to do or like so in conflict with your how you approached this that it just was incompatible? Yes, but not in the way you mean. And let me expand upon that. Um, I'm going to have to be vague here for the sake of anonymity. There's a client who hired oh, yeah. me under nominally because he was struggling with an addiction to pornography. All right. Mm -hmm. And as initially, the coaching seemed to progress well. However, very quickly, it became very clear that he wasn't progressing at all. And the week by week sessions would almost be a repeat. It'd be something like, okay, so let's talk about this week. Okay, this happened. Well, that's the same thing that happened last week. Oh, yeah, that is the same thing that happened last week. Well, this is what we talked about doing. Did you do it? No, I didn't do hmm. it. And so this sort of uh, became pretty quickly to me here that what was happening is to the belief and value that was in conflict was he didn't want to change. He was actually just fine living his life the way he was, and he didn't want to change. Hmm. And even though we had dug deep and found a reason to change, he was intensely choosing. And so we both mutually agreed to discontinue coaching until such a time as he did want to change. And- we left on good terms, don't misunderstand. But I think part of me was sad because I think part of him wanted to want to change, if that makes sense. He knew it wasn't right, yep. but he wasn't willing to give up on it yet. And hey, it took me 12 years where I was chasing ladies knowing it was the wrong way and I didn't want to let go of it. <laughs> the great prayer of yeah. St. Augustine, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. <laughs> not not the best prayer. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, moving right along past that. Uh, you mentioned a few times how you the stuff is really not coming from within Michael, but from within them. You know, you're getting TJ to think about how he can think more positively and proactively, that kind of stuff. How then like or does it ever come up where you're using the Bible or any religious tradition or text in this? Or is it purely just coming from within the other person? If I were a secular life coach, it would stop with purely inside the other person. But let me uh, I'm going to. TJ, I hope you don't mind. I picked on Joshua. I'm going to pick on you for a little <laughs> bit here. And I'm going to go deeper. Let us pretend, and this is totally Michael making this up. This is not real at all. That <laughs> TJ said to me, when I was a child, my parents always worked and were never there for me. Well, one of the first things I would need to do is that piece of TJ lives in him still. Obviously, again, totally fictional. I'm making this up. But if this were true, that piece would still live in him. And I would invite TJ into a dialogue. And the dialogue is not just with me. And I use this image a lot. Let's pretend that TJ and I are sitting here over a Zoom call. There's this feeling of being trapped and left alone and abandoned that's deep inside of TJ, this old childhood wound. And we're going to sit that feeling in a chair. 
What does that feeling want to say? And then I'm going to pull another chair up and Jesus is going to sit in that chair. And what does Jesus say to TJ? And what does Jesus say to this feeling inside of TJ? And what's amazing, and uh, without a real example to really go into this, it's amazing how often people will ascribe to Jesus actions that echo their own brokenness. Oh, well, Jesus would kind of scoff at this feeling. He would say, that's ridiculous. You shouldn't be having that. And they say, well, wait a second. What do you mean? When the woman who was caught in that very act of adultery was brought before Jesus, is that what Jesus did? Is that what Jesus said to her? Oh, no, 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 that's totally different. Well, let's let's pause and look at what Jesus did. Jesus fought to defend her. He defended her against the Pharisees. He pushed them away in a nonviolent way. And at the very end, what does he say? Doesn't anyone condemn you? Then I also will not condemn you. Go forth and sin no more. In a similar one, another great story I bring up a tremendous amount is when people are struggling with forgiveness is the parable of the, te- uh, the, parable of the, the unrepentant servant who's forgiven 10,000 talents by the master and then refuses to forgive 60 denarii to his fellow servant. And the words that our Lord speaks directly in parable, directly to the apostles, echo into the nature of the human soul. And all of us, when we confront our own brokenness, need to hear those words. We need to hear that mercy and that tenderness because we won't give it to ourselves. And even when I invite the average person in this wounded place to ask them, what might Jesus say? Almost without exception, the initial response is not merciful and compassionate. And that's where the Bible and scriptural is essential. And that's one of the spots where I mentioned earlier a few secular clients. We'd reach that point, and I could see they wouldn't give themselves mercy about some component of a wounding. And all of a sudden, I'm like, but but it's there. This is Jesus. He can give it to you right now. Can I introduce you to him? But within yeah. the faith, they at least know who he is. Yeah. So how would someone know if they need a life coach or would benefit from something like that? So how would someone know if they need a soccer coach is how I would respond to that. And so if you're, if you don't ever play, let me be real clear. I don't play soccer. Like I love the sport, but I don't play soccer. Okay. And so I'm not interested in hiring a soccer coach. And so my response to you is if you are living a life right now that you're happy with, that you're reaching your fulfillment, that you wake up in the morning and say, yeah, this is awesome. I'm nailing it. Every piece of my life right now is good to go. You don't need a life coach. You're good to go. But if you wake up in the morning and you're like, Dude, I can't believe I stayed up last night and did that thing again. I can't believe I hurt this person I love again. I can't believe I'm still stuck in the same rut and I keep doing the thing. And like, I know better. I know how not to do it, but I'm just not doing it. Then you're like that soccer player in the field who's like, oh, shoot, I missed the goal to the left again. And I always drag my foot too long and I can't seem to figure out how to get out of it. Here's the deal. Not everyone plays soccer, but everyone has exactly one life in this world. And if you're stuck in a rut, if you're unable to make the change, if you know there's a change needed, but you can't do it yourself. Consider a life coach. It doesn't even have to be me. Almost all the life coaches out there will give you a free hour. Go hang out with them for an hour. It costs you nothing. And worst case scenario, you're out an hour. Compared to the rest of your life, that's a tiny investment. That's true. That's true. Also, just so everybody's aware, uh, I've met TJ's parents. They're awesome people. I don't know about their work ethics or any of that other stuff, but just, just throwing it out there. We're not making comments about oh, yeah. uh, Don Blackwell. She's awesome. My, please understand. <laughs> yeah. I was totally yeah. throwing teaching yeah. the bus and making that up. That was not real at all. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for anyone that is curious, they they don't work that much. <laughs> my um, my my life is very similar to uh, the Batman vs Superman movie. Unfortunately, uh, you know they have that moment where they both yell Martha because their moms have the same name. I have two best friends. My mom's Sandra Don. One of my best friends' mom's name is Sandra. The other one's best name is uh, Mom. There's Don. Mom. Uh, Don. <laughs> TJ, your mom's name is Mom now. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, you, well, it always has been for me. Aware. She'd probably answer to that. <laughs> Oh, yeah, she's, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, just just fun coincidence. Um, also, TJ's 
definitely the person who wakes up in the morning and is usually just good with his life. So, so I just think it's funny. I, I like that we used him as the example because I'm like, yeah, this is perfect. I, I don't feel like we stepped on any toes at all there. Yeah. Which, yeah, yeah that, that was a reference to earlier for those who wanted to know. <laughs> stepping on toes. Um, <laughs> why is your website? Your website is Catholic Life Coach for Men. Do you only coach men? I only accept male clients, yes. Interesting. Why, why is that, if, if you don't mind me asking? Absolutely. Women are scary, Josh. <laughs> uh, so in all honesty, oh. I think that every man who discerns a vocation to marriage could say with great truth he will spend the rest of his life studying women. And this idea of the mixing of the genders is a very, very modern idea. Throughout the vast majority of humankind's history, the genders were separated most of the time except for maybe the married couples might sleep together. But all the men would go off and hunt their mammoths. <laughs> all the women would go off and collect their berries. Please understand, I'm not trying to be misogynistic here. This is just history. This is how the history worked. And all of a sudden, within the last 100 years, we decided we should just totally mix everyone together. And here's the reality. Men and women are different. It is not merely an issue of plumbing. And <laughs> I think that as a married man, I will spend the rest of my life studying the mystery that is woman. This my case, most immediately, a single woman, my wife. Her name is Sterling. And in general, the mystery of women, plural, what is femininity? What does it mean to be feminine? But I can say with confidence that my grasp of what is masculinity and what is it to be a man is significantly more, significantly better than my grasp of what it is to be a woman. I've never been one. There's an ancient mythology about this. Uh, I think it was an ancient Greek mythology about this man who the gods change into a woman and then change back. And they ask him what you want to be. And, you know, it's, it's a fun story because you can only imagine what it'd be like to live as both genders. But so many of our deepest, the reasons, the wounds that drive us to make the behaviors we dislike come from identity wounds. And the identity wounds is this idea of I have a wound in understanding who I am. Here's a great common example. Most people think uh, this phrase is relatively harmless when they think, oh, I'm broken. It's one of the worst phrases mm -hmm. we can say to ourselves ever. What does modern 21st century American do with something that's broken? We throw it away. Throw, throw it away. away. Every time. Every time. So whenever we think that to ourselves, we throw ourselves away. Now. When you confront an identity wound, when you confront an issue where we don't know who we are or we have a distorted view of who we are, and that's causing us to act in a certain way, you have to replace it with a godly view of who you are. And I understand what it is to be a man a great deal than it was to be a woman. And if I went into the depths of the or the woman, I could still coach her, but there would be something missing in my ability to reach down and touch that quintessential part of her soul, of her spirit, and to affirm that part in a way that I can affirm with another man. Yeah, it's um, with the exception of TJ, most people wouldn't say that a soccer or a hockey player is any better than a soccer player. They're, you know, equals in the world. But <laughs> I still wouldn't want a soccer coach to be coaching my hockey team. That's right. Probably not a great idea. Yeah. yeah. And I'd argue the difference between those two is a tiny fraction of the difference between men and women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is there anything else you think people would benefit from knowing about what a life coach does? I think the biggest misconception people have with a life coach is that they think, oh, I'm just going to have to sit there and like have somebody else bark at me and yell at me. And it is true. There are moments that I'm going to be harsh on my clients and be like, nope, nope, nope. You're not telling me the truth right here because you just contradicted what you said a second ago. And that doesn't make sense. However, what people don't realize, and the thing I want them to know is that if you are willing to go through the work to mature and to learn how to handle feelings, to learn how to handle emotions, to stand tall in your own masculinity, you get your power back. 
you get to put down the victim card. You get to realize how much more power God gave you in this life than you can possibly imagine when you're playing this card of, oh, I can't do anything. It's my boss's fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my kid's fault. It's whatever. We blame people so much. And when we do that, we surrender the power that God gave us to forge the life we want. And the thing that people most consider about life coaching is they think it's about someone else trying to get them in trouble. In reality, it's them, someone else, in this case, me as an example, trying to empower you to find that power that you've lost. Right. So hmm, I hope that helps somebody. But uh, is there any one question you've always hoped you'd get asked when appearing on somebody else's podcast that people rarely seem to think about? You know, I think people don't normally ask me. So I, I have to disclose a little bit here. I'm a, I have a PhD in chemistry. And really, I have not yet been asked. I, I thought about this one question ahead of time. Michael, why in the world would a PhD chemist choose to go be a life coach? And I, I think it's a fair question to ask. And part of it, I think it comes down to the humor of God. You, you, I don't know if you guys have ever heard the old joke that, you know, the way to make God laugh is tell him your plans. And I, I think <laughs> that is extremely true. And when I, I was at a very successful career at a major semiconductor manufacturing as a research engineer, I was promoted very quickly. I loved a lot of parts of that work. I was very, uh, very financially, you know, rewarding. But what I discovered was along the way, the piece that I loved the most was this interhuman connection piece. And I started to realize I actually didn't enjoy the solving the problems of the widgets as much. I mean, nothing's wrong with solving problems with widgets. Widgets need to be solved. And widgets need to be built. But the interhuman connection piece, it was just so attractive. And I'm going to tell one short story here. There was a gentleman that I met at one of my jobs, and he was not natively American, but he was really struggling with at first, it was some stuff with interpersonal relationships at work, and the discussions quickly thereafter went to interpersonal relationships at home and with family. And we established such a connection there, and I helped him so much that for almost a decade after I left that job, he still stayed in touch. He would still drive hours to come visit like you know, some, to some event that I happened to be running just for a chance to catch up. And the connection there and the power there was so meaningful to me that when I eventually left the corporate world, I said, this is what I want to go do. Because it's, I feel like this is kind of like what God gave me the ability to do, the right. ability to see into a human heart past the lies that we all tell ourselves. What well, what was your corporate job before this? Just curious. So I was a research engineer. Um, I worked for, oh, cool. uh, legally, I have to say, a major semiconductor manufacturing firm based in Hillsboro, Oregon. And if you Google that, it may be obvious which one it is. In any case, um, I worked with a process called chemical mechanical polishing, which where you take, imagine this you know 12-inch piece of extremely delicate glass covered with some 50 trillion little tiny connections you flip it upside down put on a wet sloppy solution grind it real hard into a pad and then you have to do that down to sub nanometer level resolution and so it was a lot of fun it was very challenging and i was there i was involved in the industry for almost 10 years and i said i did very well i was promoted pretty quickly in fact here's a funny story that really drives the point home when i first started working i was still very very wounded myself and still hurting a lot of people and i get my first group and one year into my first group, my boss pulls me off to the side. And he says, Michael, we got to talk. I'm like, oh, cool. It's about that new result. He's like, no, it's not. We sit down in the conference room and he says to me, Michael, your whole team wants to quit. They can't stand working for you. And I was like, mm. sucker punch. I'm like, oh, what? And he's like, but I see the potential in you. I'm going to give you another chance and a whole nother brand new team. And he did like four brand new people wow. rebuilt the team from scratch. And he said, all right. And he was ruthlessly brutal. He ripped apart every time that in an email or in a meeting, I said something poorly and was not con considerate of the other person, like from an EQ level. And it was so wow. powerful that two years later, one of the original people on my team happened to be in a meeting that I was running. And after the meeting, 
we walk out of that meeting and he grabs my shoulder almost, almost a little violently, not, not too rough, pulls me into another room and says, Michael, we got to talk. I'm like, sure, Josh, what's up? What happened to you? I'm like, what do you mean, Josh? He's like, you're not the same person you were two years ago. I didn't like that guy. But the person I just saw in this meeting, I not only like him, I kind of respect him. What happened? And so that is, I think, kind of what really pulled me through right there. Yeah, so it speaks a lot to what you do now. Yeah. So where can people go to learn more or to sign up for your services? Absolutely. So the first off, I want to have a check out, in addition to this very fine podcast, which at the moment is my favorite podcast <laughs> in the Christian Reign, also go check Thank out... You. My podcast is Catholic Life Coach for Men. I really try to, you know, make this easy for those SEO optimization folks to be like, I'm just a Catholic life coach and I work with men. I work with Protestants too. The Catholic part means that this is who I am and I proclaim my faith with definitiveness. So check out my podcast, Catholic Life Coach for Men. You can also check my website, www.catholiclifecoachformen.com. Oh yeah. yeah. Keep it simple. I like simple. Yeah. I'm an engineer. Keep it simple. Simple's good. Yep. Is it, is it keep it simple, stupid? That's how. Yep. Kiss, I love that one out, but you're totally kiss, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, Michael, one thing we, we like to ask everybody is just, and I, and I know we kind of been up all over the place, especially focusing in on the life coaching stuff, but, and maybe this is practical from life coaching aspect. What is a single tangible action that ordinary people can do that would help better maintain unity in the church today? So, you know, Life Coach is all about being practical. What is our uh, practical thing that we can do for unity? All right. Here's what, here's what I'm going to give you. Um, whether it's with unity in the church, say with someone of a different denomination, or whether in your family, whether in your workplace, is all the same thing. Sometimes in the next day, maybe the next hour, someone's going to wrong you. Someone's going to say something that's thoughtful or insensitive. Here's what I want you to do. Yeah. I want you in that moment to place yourself in the shoes of the unrepent, of the unforgiving servant. And here's what I want this to be really, really powerful. And you're going to have this debt in the, in the biblical passage. The debt from the other servant is 50 denarii. Okay. And you in this moment, as your life coach, I'm going to tell you, you have two thoughts you can think. You can think, oh my gosh, this bozo just wronged me. He owes me 50 denarii. Or you can think, oh my gosh, I just wronged God. I owe God 10,000 talents. And the really practical part is as this moment comes and these two thoughts surface, Choose to focus upon the second one. And what this will do is this will transform your ability to forgive and to reconcile with whatever the offense was. Because what's so critical is it doesn't take away the validity of the offense. This, the smaller debt is still real. It's still true. But by choosing to focus our thoughts on the part that puts it in perspective of God, on the part that allows for God's mercy, it will transform your life. And particularly for those of you who are married, I'm giving you gold here, guys. I'm giving you gold. Your spouse is going to hurt you. And you can choose to focus on that or focus on the debt that God has paid off for you. And that that debt is so vastly greater than any debt your spouse could owe you. That when your thoughts and perspectives go to the godly, so does your life. So what would be the, what would be the effects we'd see in the world if we all did that? I think the biggest thing we'd see is we'd see a lot more tempering of the way we speak to and treat each other. I, I gotta be real blunt to call out right now, like the Christian world is under attack. According to some, you might say we've already been defeated. I, I don't knock hard to hold to that pessimistic viewpoint. And as a whole, Christendom no longer holds the dominant position in this country. Our country was founded on Christian values and there are forces at work that are quickly working to undermine those. And I believe one of the reasons those forces are being so successful is that we as Christians are not presenting a unified front. 
and one of the reasons we're not unified is we get stuck bickering and arguing. I, I don't know if you've ever seen the Monty Python movie. Now, now, let's not bicker and argue about who killed who. We get stuck in these <laughs> distracting arguments that aren't relevant compared to the real challenges our society is facing. Our moral values as Christian are on trial right now in the court of public opinion. And instead of showing up as a unified front to say, I stand by my brother, Joshua, I stand by my brother, TJ. We may have had differences. They may have mispronounced my name, but I'm willing to forgive them for that. <laughs> Standing together and making that unity felt in the court of public opinion, I believe is one of the most important things we can do, whether it's our own family, our community, our state level, national level, whatever level you want to look at, the call for Christians to stand together in unity, I think is one of the most important ones we have. Yeah, I agree. One thing before we do our outro, uh, we like to talk about our uh, God moment segment. It's just a minute to share what all God's been up to with us recently by sharing a blessing, a challenge, a moment of worship, whatever it may be. I always make Joshua go first to give myself and our esteemed guest as much time as we need to collect our thoughts of the past week. Uh, so, uh, Joshua, do you have a God moment for us this week? So something I worry about that uh, that that I'm I don't think I'm guilty of. I, I worry that some people might think that I've started using the God moment to occasionally sell them on stuff. <laughs> but <laughs> in all seriousness, if you know me, that I, I really am just the kind of person who is very grateful. Thanksgiving isn't my favorite holiday just because of the food. I actually really value the virtue of thankfulness, and I'm very humbled when I see people do stuff for me and I'm truly thankful about it. So recently we've had people, a couple people buy the shirts for the fundraiser thing. Some people that I knew that I was like, I, you know, I told them about it just cause I didn't really expect them to get one. So shout out Leslie for one. <laughs> and um, that, that was humbling. And I was thankful for that. And then there were people over on the systematic ecology website and they bought some of the merch over there. And I know that, Hey, maybe it's because they just liked the clothing and stuff. But I think it's probably because they want to support this ministry. And to me, that's a real blessing. So I'm thankful for that. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh can I say that? No. Is that allowed? Okay. <laughs> so my uh my roommate, who will remain unnamed for anonymity's sake, you know, just in case he he minds, I doubt it, but uh he has his new big boy job, you know, post degree. And it's, it is yeah. what he wanted to do, but he's also been blessed with the opportunity to play football past the collegiate level. And, you know, it's kind of that thing, like I haven't heard from the agent. I don't know what's going on with it. They haven't talked to me in a little while. But uh, he is, in fact, on contract for a football team. And American or soccer? American <laughs> football. Okay. <laughs> and I love he's, he's too big for soccer. But oh, okay. yeah, I, I love seeing my friends get blessed with the opportunities that they've always wanted. And it's been great. Also, side note, just because I think you'd find it interesting, uh, one of the shirts that were bought <laughs> recently on SG was just a quote from DJ <laughs> about giant lizards. Yeah, yeah, that's there a good shirt. Go. Everybody yeah, else would also go buy that shirt. But <laughs> uh, Michael Jaquith, do you have a God moment for us this week? I do. So I'm a parent. I have six kids, and I realize that you guys may not have you know a big load of kids yet. But one of the things that always causes fear in a parent's heart is. Am I doing the right things to teach my children kindness and compassion? And you guys at least probably have had siblings, or at least seen siblings, and sibling fights exist. You know, they're a thing. And as a parent, every time your kids start fighting, you're kind of like, oh, no, I'm doing it all wrong. I'm ruining everything. They're all fighting. They're all going to hate each other. But there's this beautiful <laughs> moment. It was, it was uh, yesterday. And I walked out of my office, and there was my lovely little nine-year-old 
and she has pulled up a stack of books and she's reading these books to her next two younger siblings. And they're just sitting there and they're saying every book, they're like, oh, thank you so much for reading this. And she's just grinning from eye to eye. And it's like this perfect moment of unity where I see these kids just loving each other. And she was reading like books of that were seasonally appropriate. Something uh, is Advent now in the church and she's reading Advent books. Oh, yeah. And that moment, I just paused and I stopped. I didn't want to say anything at first because like, I don't want to break the magic of what's happening right now. <laughs> yeah. And just that moment where I feel like God said, hey, look, they do love each other. Despite the number of times they punch each other and pull their hair and and dump water <laughs> in the other soup and oh gosh the other day, never mind I'm gonna tell you some of the shenanigans they pulled but that was a perfect <laughs> God moment yeah I um man, I'm feeling talkative today for some reason but, shocking yeah I I told the story at my brother's wedding too but one one of my favorite things is that me and my brother we got in trouble more often for times our parents thought we were fighting that we weren't than we did that we were actually fighting. And I remember one time I, I was coming home from college and he was still in high school and we went on a walk together and we were talking about how like, we just didn't really fight like normal siblings and how we kind of feel like we messed up. We missed out on that. <laughs> and I was eating a bag of Doritos while we were walking. I was like, Matt, I have one left. You should take it from me and I'll be pissed at you for it. <laughs> so he took it. And at his wedding, I told the story just like, and I just want you all to know Matt owes me a Dorito and I'm pissed about it. <laughs> That's awesome. Also, Matt, if you're listening, you do still owe me a Dorito. I'm only partially getting. I expect yeah. that Dorito one day. Yeah. I hit my little sister with a vacuum one time. But if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend. Uh, you could share it with an enemy. You could share it with a cousin. You can share it with your siblings. Uh, if your siblings aren't fans, uh, why? That's kind of rude of you uh, to not be putting us out there like that. Yeah. What um, about cousins? Cousins, of course. Yeah. So many great options for, for sharing the show. Yeah, it would help us so it. much, and we'd appreciate it. We are with, what was it, the top 10% of most shared podcasts, according to Spotify. So That's you great. guys are sharing, and uh, thanks. That's cool. Um, also, go over to systematicgeekology.org. Here are other podcasts, Systematic Geekology. You can hit the host tab, see all the episodes that TJ and I are on, and uh, share it until it's in the top 10% of shared podcasts. That'd be cool. That'd be great, yeah. actually. And check out our Patreon, so you can check out our Too Long Didn't Listen segment, where... This show gets summarized in 10 seconds or less, usually. Yeah. Yeah. Attempt is made. <laughs> uh, go to our store or uh, to buy a limited time fundraiser t-shirt. I assume they're not going to be available after the fundraiser's over, but we will probably cave and just let you buy them anyway. So yeah. no pressure, <laughs> but uh, we want our new website and we would love to see you at our convention next year. So start looking out for those tickets and buy the shirts to support us and thank you for listening to the whole church podcast we hope you enjoyed the episode coming up we will have a special christmas bonus episode with eugene stutzman again discussing the watoto ministry in uganda africa and then we will have eric nevins the founder of the christian podcasters association turning to discuss the status and future of christian podcasting in the coming year after that Mike Moreau, co-author of The Divine Dance with Richard Rohr, will join us to talk about some books to look forward to next year from his publishing group. And finally, at the end of season one, Francis Chan will be joining us. Wow. Does he know about that? I hope not. That would mean he has declined. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he doesn't. Thank you. He'll figure it out. Yeah. Thank you all so much for your time today. Thank you, Michael, for your time today. It's been a pleasure to be here. And insight into what a christian life coach does i'm sure that's very helpful for our audience and maybe something some of them should look into yeah or some of us <laughs> it's been so good guys you're awesome <laughs> thank you for listening to the whole church podcast we hope you enjoyed the show tune back in next week 
where we'll be interviewing Eric Nevins, the head of the Christian Podcasters Association and host of Halfway There.